section twenty eight of fancies versus fads by g k chesterton this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. fancies versus fads by g k chesterton section twenty eight turning inside out when the author of if winter comes brought out another book about the life of the family it was almost as much criticized as the first book was praised i do not say that there was nothing to criticize but i do say that i was not convinced by the abstract logic of the criticism probably the critics would have accepted it as a true story if the author had not been so incautious as to give it a true moral and the moral is not fashionable in the press at the moment for it is to the effect that a woman may gain a professional success at the price of a domestic failure and it is the convention of journalism at this moment to support what is feminist against what is feminine anyhow while the story might be criticized the criticisms can certainly be criticized it is not really conclusive to say that a woman may be ambitious in business without her children going to the bad it is just as easy to say that a woman may be ambitious in politics without helping to murder an old gentleman in his bed but that does not make macbeth either inartistic or untrue it is just as easy to say that a woman may be ambitious in society without tricking her husband into a debtor's prison so that she may spend the time with a bald-headed nobleman with red whiskers but that does not make the great scene in vanity fair unconvincing either in detail or design the question in fiction is not whether that thing must occur but whether that sort of thing may occur and whether it is significant of larger things now this business of the woman at work and the woman at home is a very large thing and this story about it is highly significant for in this matter the modern mind is inconsistent with itself it has managed to get one of its rather crude ideals in flat contradiction to the other people of the progressive sort are perpetually telling us that the hope of the world is in education education is everything nothing is so important as training the rising generation nothing is really important except the rising generation they tell us this over and over again with slight variations of the same formula and never seem to see what it involves for if there be any word of truth in all this talk about the education of the child then there is certainly nothing but nonsense in nine-tenths of the talk about the emancipation of the woman if education is the highest function in the state why should anybody want to be emancipated from the highest function in the state it is as if we talked of commuting the sentence that condemned a man to be president of the united states or a reprieve coming in time to save him from being pope if education is the largest thing in the world what is the sense of talking about a woman being liberated from the largest thing in the world it is as if we were to rescue her from the cruel doom of being a poet like shakespeare or to pity the limitations of an all-around artist like leonardo da vinci nor can there be any doubt that there is truth in this claim for education 
only precisely the sort of which it is particularly true is the sort called domestic education private education really is universal public education can be comparatively narrow it would really be an exaggeration to say that the schoolmaster who takes his pupils in freehand drawing is training them in all the uses of freedom it really would be fantastic to say that the harmless foreigner who instructs a class in french or german is talking with all the tongues of men and angels but the mother dealing with her own daughters in her own home does literally have to deal with all forms of freedom because she has to deal with all sides of a single human soul she is obliged if not to talk with the tongues of men and angels at least to decide how much she shall talk about angels and how much about men in short if education is really the larger matter then certainly domestic life is the larger matter and official or commercial life the lesser matter it is a mere matter of arithmetic that anything taken from the larger matter will leave it less it is a mere matter of simple subtraction that the mother must have less time for the family if she has more time for the factory if education ethical and cultural really were a trivial and mechanical matter the mother might possibly rattle through it as a rapid routine before going about her more serious business of serving a capitalist for hire if education were merely instruction she might briefly instruct her babies in the multiplication tables before she mounted to higher and nobler spheres as the servant of a milk trust or the secretary of a drug combine but the moderns are perpetually assuring us that education is not instruction they are perpetually insisting that it is not a mechanical exercise and must on no account be an abbreviated exercise it must go on at every hour it must cover every subject but if it must go on at all hours it must not be neglected in business hours and if the child is to be free to cover every subject the parent must be free to cover every subject too for the idea of a non-parental substitute is simply an illusion of wealth the advanced advocate of this inconsistent and infinite education for the child is generally thinking of the rich child and all this particular sort of liberty should rather be called luxury it is natural enough for a fashionable lady to leave her little daughter with the french governess or the czechoslovakian governess or the ancient sanskrit governess and know that one or other of these sides of the infant's intelligence is being developed while she the mother figures in public as a money-lender or some other modern position of dignity but among poorer people there cannot be five teachers to one pupil generally there are about fifty pupils to one teacher there it is impossible to cut up the soul of a single child and distribute it among specialists it is all we can do to tear in pieces the soul of a single schoolmaster and distribute it in rags and scraps to a whole mob of boys and even in the case of the wealthy child it is by no means clear that specialists are a substitute for spiritual authority even a millionaire can never be certain that he has not left out one governess 
in the long procession of governesses perpetually under his marble portico and the omission may be as fatal as that of the king who forgot to ask the bad fairy to the christening the daughter after a life of ruin and despair may look back and say had i but also had a lithuanian governess my fate as a diplomatist's wife in eastern europe would have been very different but it seems rather more probable on the whole that what she would miss would not be one or other of these special accomplishments but some common-sense code of morals or general view of life the millionaire could no doubt hire a mahatma or mystical prophet to give his child a general philosophy but i doubt if the philosophy would be very successful even for the rich child and it would be quite impossible for the poor child in the case of comparative poverty which is the common lot of mankind we come back to a general parental responsibility which is the common sense of mankind we come back to the parent as the person in charge of education if you exalt the education you must exalt the parental power with it if you exaggerate the education you must exaggerate the parental power with it if you depreciate the parental power you must depreciate education with it if the young are always right and can do as they like well and good let us all be jolly old and young and free from every kind of responsibility but in that case do not come pestering us with the importance of education when nobody has any authority to educate anybody make up your mind whether you want unlimited education or unlimited emancipation but do not be such a fool as to suppose you can have both at once there is evidence as i have noted that the more hard-headed people even of the most progressive sort are beginning to come back to realities in this respect the new work of mr hutchinson's is only one of many indications among the really independent intelligences working on modern fiction that the cruder culture of merely commercial emancipation is beginning to smell a little stale the work of miss clements dane and even of miss sheila k smith contains more than one suggestion of what i mean people are no longer quite so certain that a woman's liberty consists of having a latch-key without a house they are no longer wholly convinced that every housekeeper is dull and prosaic while every bookkeeper is wild and poetical and among the intelligent the reaction is actually strengthened by all the most modern excitements about psychology and hygiene we cannot insist that every trick of nerves or train of thought is important enough to be searched for in libraries and laboratories and not important enough for anybody to watch by simply staying at home we cannot insist that the first years of infancy are of supreme importance and that mothers are not of supreme importance or that motherhood is a topic of sufficient interest for men but not of sufficient interest for mothers every word that is said about the tremendous importance of trivial nursery habits goes to prove that being a nurse is not trivial all tends to the return of the simple truth that the private work is the great one and the public work the small the human house is a paradox for it is larger inside than out 
but in the problem of private versus public life there is another neglected truth it is true of many masculine problems as well as of this feminine problem indeed feminism falls here into exactly the same mistake as militarism and imperialism i mean that anything on a grand scale gives the illusion of a grand success curiously enough multiplication acts as a concealment repetition actually disguises failure take a particular man and tell him to put on a particular kind of hat and coat and trousers and to stand in particular attitudes in the back garden and you will have great difficulty in persuading yourself or him that he has passed through a triumph and transfiguration order four hundred such hats and eight hundred such trousers and you will have turned the fancy costume into a uniform make all the four hundred men stand in the special attitudes on salisbury plain and there will rise up before you the spirit of a regiment let the regiment march past and if you have any life in you above the brutes that perish you will have an overwhelming sense that something splendid has just happened or is just going to begin i sympathize with this moral emotion in militarism i think it does symbolize something great in the soul which has given us the image of st michael but i also realize that in practical relations that emotion can get mixed up with an illusion it is not really possible to know the characters of all the four hundred men in the marching column as well as one might know the character of the one man attitudinizing in the back garden if all the four hundred men were individual failures we could still vaguely feel that the whole thing was a success if we know the one man to be a failure we cannot think him a success that is why a footman has become rather a foolish figure while a foot-soldier remains rather a sublime one or rather that is one of the reasons for there are others much more worthy anyhow footmen were only formidable or dignified when they could come in large numbers like foot-soldiers when they were in fact the feudal army of some great local family having some of the loyalty of local patriotism then a livery was as dignified as a uniform because it really was a uniform a man who said he served the nevilles or rode with the douglases could once feel much like a man fighting for france or england but military feeling is mob feeling noble as mob feeling may be parading one footman is like lunching on one pea or curing baldness by the growth of one hair there ought not to be anything but a plural for flunkies any more than for measles or vermin or animalculae or the sweets called hundreds and thousands strictly speaking i suppose that a logical latinist could say i have seen an animalcula but i never heard of a child having the moderation to remark i have eaten a hundred and thousand similarly any one of us can feel that to have hundreds and thousands of slaves let alone soldiers might give a certain imaginative pleasure in magnificence to have one slave reveals all the meanness of slavery for the solitary flunky really is the man in fancy dress the man standing in the back garden in the strange and the fantastic coat and breeches 
his isolation reveals our illusion we find our failure in the back garden when we have been dreaming a dream of success in the marketplace when you ride through the streets amid a great mob of vassals you may have noticed you have a genial and not ungenerous sense of being at one with them all you cannot remember their names or count their numbers but their very immensity seems a substitute for intimacy that is what great men have felt at the head of great armies and the reason why napoleon or Foch would call his soldiers mes enfants he feels at that moment that they are a part of him as if he had a million arms and legs but it is very different if you disband your army of lackeys or if as is after all possible you have not got an army of lackeys it is very different if you look at one lackey one solitary solemn footman standing in your front hall you never have the sense of being caught up into a rapture of unity with him all your sense of social solidarity with your social inferiors has dropped from you it is only in public that people can be so intimate as that when you look into the eyes of the lonely footman you see that his soul is far away in other words you find yourself at the foot of a steep and staggering mountain crag that is the real character and conscience of a man to be really at one with that man you would have to solve real problems and believe that your own solutions were real in dealing with the one man you would really have a far huger and harder job than in dealing with your throng of thousands and that is the job that people run away from when they wish to escape from domesticity to public work especially educational work they wish to escape from a sense of failure which is simply a sense of fact they wish to recapture the illusion of the marketplace it is an illusion that departs in the dark interiors of domesticity where the realities dwell as i've said i am very far from condemning it altogether it is a lawful pleasure and a part of life in its proper proportion like any other but i am concerned to point out to the feminists and the faddists that it is not an approach to truth but rather the opposite publicity is rather of the nature of a harmless romance public life at its very best will contain a great deal of harmless romancing and much more often a very harmful romancing in other words i am concerned with pointing out that the passage from private life to public life while it may be right or wrong or necessary or unnecessary or desirable or undesirable is always of necessity a passage from a greater work to a smaller one and from a harder work to an easier one and that is why most of the moderns do wish to pass from the great domestic task to the smaller and easier commercial one they would rather provide the liveries of a hundred footmen than be bothered with the love affairs of one they would rather take the salutes of a hundred soldiers than try to save the soul of one they would rather serve out income tax papers or telegraph forms to a hundred men than meals conversation and moral support to one 
they would rather arrange the educational course in history or geography or correct the examination papers in algebra or trigonometry for a hundred children than struggle with the whole human character of one for anyone who makes himself responsible for one small baby as a whole will soon find that he is wrestling with gigantic angels and demons in another way there is something of illusion or of irresponsibility about the purely public function especially in the case of public education the educationist generally deals with only one section of the pupil's mind but he always deals with only one section of the pupil's life the parent has to deal not only with the whole of the child's character but also with the whole of the child's career the teacher sows the seed but the parent reaps as well as sows the schoolmaster sees more children but it is not clear that he sees more childhood certainly he sees less youth and no maturity the number of little girls who take prussic acid is necessarily small the boys who hang themselves on bedposts after a life of crime are generally the minority but the parent has to envisage the whole life of the individual and not merely the school life of the scholar it is not probable that the parent will exactly anticipate crime and prussic acid as the crown of the infant's career but he will anticipate hearing of the crime if it is committed he will probably be told of the suicide if it takes place it is quite doubtful whether the schoolmaster or schoolmistress will ever hear of it at all everybody knows that teachers have a harassing and often heroic task but it is not unfair to them to remember that in this sense they have an exceptionally happy task the cynic would say that the teacher is happy in never seeing the results of his own teaching i prefer to confine myself to saying that he has not the extra worry of having to estimate it from the other end the teacher is seldom in at the death to take a milder theatrical metaphor he is seldom there on the night but this is only one of many instances of the same truth that what is called public life is not larger than private life but smaller what we call public life is a fragmentary affair of sections and seasons and impressions it is only in private life that dwells the fullness of our life bodily end of section 28 recording by linda johnson